Great. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, exciting to, to be with you all. And um, I yeah, heard really great things about, about you uh, as a community and uh, excited to get to know more people uh, within Richmond and to connect with you all tonight. Um, so again, I'm, my name is Nathan Walton, uh, co-lead pastor at Easton Fellowship. And um, I am also very, as, as uh, Kevin mentioned, I'm, I'm fairly new to Richmond. Uh, we're, we've been in about six months now, I think. Um, but I've been working at Easton and commuting for actually almost a little bit over a year. So um, it's good to be with you all. Good to be with you all. So from what I can tell, uh, you've been in the series for a while now. And um, uh, I was looking through the website and uh, watched some of the videos and um, really have gotten a strong sense that you've covered a lot of ground uh, on this topic of, of gratitude. And um, I'm excited about, you know, just being a part of the rest of the series as we wrap up tonight. And um, hopefully all this is really have a launch pad for all of us to continue to lead lives of gratitude. And so even though the series and um, hopefully our lives will continue to reflect the things that we've gleaned during this time. And so uh, as I get started, uh, this week I was reminded of um, summer 2015. I was preparing to uh, preach a sermon at the church I used to pastor at in Charlottesville. And, um, but I was away for a weekend. I was in, um, in Baltimore. And so it was a Thursday morning. I um, was thinking to myself, my plan for today is uh, I have stuff I need to do later on today, but right now I'm going to wake up and I'm going to get started on the sermon. And so the, the, the um, passage for the sermon for that week was uh, Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And so I got really excited because that's just an exciting passage. And um, I had all these different thoughts going through my head around, you know, what does it look like to um, really recognize Jesus as king and to celebrate um, Jesus' sonship and uh, yeah, to preach something about worship and, and all those things. And so I remember as I was beginning to prepare, I put on the TV and CNN was on. And um, the first thing I noticed was that they were talking about something that happened the night before. So the night before was June 17, uh, 2015, which, as you may remember, was the uh, night of the Charleston Massacre. And so I remember um, feeling this kind of crazy tension in my head because on one level, I had been really excited about preaching about Jesus coming as king and having this really celebratory sermon. And then all of a sudden I was faced with tragedy um, and faced with the reality of um, this tension we live in, in terms of this world being a world where God's spirit has come, but also a world that remains broken and in a world in which God's kingdom has not fully manifested itself. And, um, and so I felt this, this, this tension between celebration, but also tragedy. And this week I actually felt something somewhat similar uh, on Monday. I got really excited about tonight because I, I realized, oh man, it's coming up. Let's prepare for this gratitude talk and um, this time of sharing with one another. And uh, as Kevin mentioned, I have two degrees from UVA. I actually spent about 13, well, 14 of the last 17 years living in Charlottesville. And, and so I have a lot of UVA connections, a lot of connections to Charlottesville, and just was brought face to face with this tragedy and this loss that happened. And at the same time, I'm trying to like get my mind kind of in gear for thinking about gratitude and thankfulness and, and joy and all these things. And so a question that this made me kind of wrestle with was what does it mean to practice gratefulness and gratitude amidst grief? How might an understanding of gratefulness as a discipline help us to cling to it in moments of unmet need? And this is really what I had to do back when I was doing that sermon on Jesus' triumphal entry. Um, I still preached about Christ as king, but it's really about Christ as king in the midst of the world that is broken. And so I think that's a lot of what, what I've been processing this week in terms of gratefulness. And so um, originally when I thought about the title 
of embodied gratefulness, which you'll see from the website, right? Um, I was envisioning the ways that we tangibly express thanks towards God and to one another, whether that be, you know, tangible acts of thanks or, or gifts, or whether that be in worship, right? We, we talk about Eucharist a lot when we do Holy Communion, and Eucharist literally means Thanksgiving. That's the, the root of the word. Um, I think about like embodied worship. That's, those are the things that came to mind initially when I kind of consider this title of embodied gratefulness. Um, but another way to envision embodied gratitude is to recognize how gratitude takes into account our full humanity, our emotions, our fears, our insecurities, and our joys. And I think a huge um, example of this in the scripture that we see is in the Psalms, right? In the Psalms, you'll have one passage where David's saying, Lord, uh, save me because Saul's trying to kill me, right? Or deliver me from my enemies, all these things. And then in the, same, in the very same psalm, he's saying, God, I praise you. God, I worship you. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Like all these things. So David is, is constantly holding together the realities of life, the things that are hard about life, but also the affirmation of God's goodness. And he's expressing his gratitude in the midst of that. So in other words, gratitude is not a self-denialism that ignores our pain or our lack. Gratitude is an acknowledgement and an affirmation that we bring our full selves to the moment of gratefulness, our emotions, our joys, our pain, and even our hopes. And so a posture of authentic thanksgiving actually requires the spiritual capacity to acknowledge suffering. That's actually what I want to discuss tonight and reflect on tonight. In other words, how might we bring our full selves to the practice of gratefulness? our emotions, our physical bodies, our environments, and our involvement, how do we bring all that into the practice of gratefulness? And I think a, a really helpful example of this in scripture is um, the story of Job. I just got re get done reading Job recently, uh, or rereading it. And um, it's fascinating to me because, uh, you know, Job goes through all these things, especially in chapter one, right? He loses his, you know, he loses family members, loses his livestock, possessions, all these things. He suffers his anguish, and he responds by ripping his clothes, shaving his head, and then by verse 20 of chapter 1, he responds in worship. And he says, naked I came from a mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. So Job understands that gratefulness has to acknowledge pain. It has to acknowledge it. But he cultivated it as a discipline. And so his worship was also embodied, right? It was emotional. It was physical. Like he had a physical reaction to these things. But it culminates with him worshiping God and praising God somehow in the midst of all this. So as I think about Job, I'm like, you know, Job seems like a pretty holy dude, right? I mean, his friends throughout the rest of the book, if you read it, may not have been convinced of that. Um, but Job somehow is able to be very honest about what he's going through, similar to David. But then to all say, you know what, God, I'm going to be grateful. I'm going to practice Thanksgiving. I'm going to worship. And somehow he's able to, to muster that up. And I think one question this leaves us with is, how do we get there? Like, how do we get to that place? How do we cultivate gratefulness as this unwavering discipline? A discipline that can endure hardship, that can endure loss, that can endure setbacks, and still cling to the reality of God being a good God. And, and as we uh, begin to kind of unpack this, I do think there are some helpful preconditions for gratefulness, because what I, um, I think there are a lot of like great 
ideas about how to practice gratefulness out there. And some of them came up in the um, previous uh, sessions in the series. But I think before we jump to the ways that we express gratefulness, I think we have to do some pre-work. We have to think about what are the what are the conditions under which gratefulness actually can become a part of us, a part of our lifestyle, a part of our dispositions, so that we can um, out of that kind of live lives of gratefulness and gratitude. And I think part of this begins with an awareness of what we have received. First and foremost, we have been blessed by God. Like Christ has sent His very Son to die for us, to rise from the dead, to give us an opportunity to have new life. And that's an expression of God's great grace for us. And so an awareness of God's grace is really, really important um, in order to have sustainable gratitude. I think an awareness of God's mercy is important, right? Like grace um, is God giving us things that we don't deserve. Mercy is God withholding things that we do deserve. Um, both those things are true. And the, the, the deeper um, these realities have a grip on us and the, and the, the deeper those, those truths stick into us, the easier it would be for us to respond in gratitude because we are aware of just what God has done. At the same time, I think there are things, there are ways that God blessed us that are much less dramatic than Jesus coming and dying on the cross, but there's still reasons to be grateful. And just everyday things that we encounter, um, something that the book of James reminds us of is that every good gift comes from God. And so that means that whether it's the miraculous or whether it's the mundane, these are all gifts that come from God. And the more aware we are of these things around us, the easier it will be for us to remember that God should, should be is, is worthy of our gratitude, and the more natural it will be to cultivate um, a disposition of gratitude towards God. Um, I remember uh, years ago, my oldest daughter is about to turn six, and so a little bit less than six years ago, I remember we um, I just become a dad. We came home from the hospital, and um, I think it was the day after we got home. I remember taking her outside and just holding her. And watching her just look up at the sky. And it was so interesting because and first, first thing that came to my mind is like, what is she looking at? Like, what is going on? And then I realized like, oh, this is not normal to her. She's not seen the sky a lot. But like she had such wonder in her eyes because she was experiencing it new and she was appreciating it. And for me, I realized I see the sky every day. Everybody on this call probably sees the sky every day. And we don't necessarily think about, man, this is a gift from God because we're so used to it, we're so familiar with it. But it was helpful for me to have that experience through her because I realized how much I've taken those types of things for granted. Now for her, as she gets older, it's easy for her to be grateful for them because she's not gonna take those things for granted because they're new. Um, and so I wonder for us in our own Christian lives, how do we recognize not just the big things that God does and respond with thankfulness, but even the small things in our everyday lives? How do we see those things as having the fingerprints of God on them and being gifts from God for us. Now, acknowledging God's many gifts, whether they be big or small, is uh, I think easier said than done in some ways. And I think a reason for that is that our culture shapes us to not, to not recognize those things. Um, the work of Christian thinker James K. Smith uh, shed some light on how this happens in our culture. And some of you may be familiar with his work, but he refers to something that he calls um, cultural liturgies. Sometimes he calls them secular liturgies. Sometimes he calls them social liturgies. But um, to kind of uh, frame what he means by this, this uh, idea of cultural liturgies, practices are things that we do, right? Practices are just things that we do. And liturgies are things that we do that do something to us. So liturgies form us. They teach us what and how to love. Um, the clearest example of this is 
liturgy, right? So on Sundays, we gather together and we might um, sing songs, we might hear a sermon, we might do a corporate confession, give an offering, all these different things. And these are liturgies. These are things that are not just practices we're doing, but they're actually shaping us and forming us. They're helping us to think about the world a certain way. They're helping us to think about God a certain way. They're helping us to understand ourselves in certain types of ways. And so there are these liturgies that we're engaging in that are shaping us. So part of what James K. Smith is trying to say is, oh, in an analogous way that in churches we have these kind of cultural or these um, Christian liturgies, there are also these secular or cultural liturgies out in the world. In other words, there are these everyday practices and rhythms and rituals that we engage in and interact with all the time, just in our day-to-day lives. And those things are actually shaping us. They're shaping the types of people that we are. And so to give you some examples of that, um, cell phones. So I'm assuming most of us on this call probably have cell phones. It can be a great thing. They are a helpful communication tool that keep folks connected, um, keep you reachable. But the other thing that cell phones can do is they can actually shape us to not be present to our current surroundings. So to give you an example, something that I noticed is I've come to grips with the fact that I'm addicted to my cell phone. So I'm on it too much. It draws too much of my attention. And one clear, one clear sign of that for me is coming home and I have two small kids, one, three, one, five, two little girls. And the first thing they want is attention, which is great. They're kids, they should want attention. Um, but what I notice is there is other thing tugging at me and that is, you know, work emails or this alert about the Lakers, because I'm a Lakers fan, even though they're terrible this year. Um, all these different things that are tugging at my attention. And so this phone, this device that is a helpful tool for communication, it's also shaping me to not be as present to what's right in front of me. And so it's, it becomes this kind of cultural liturgy, this, this um, ritual, this recurring act that I'm participating in and being shaped by. Another example of this is social media. And so social media is great at, you know, helping you connect with someone who may be, you know, all the way across the world. But the other thing that social media does is it shapes us. It shapes us to, for example, overvalue other people's opinions of us. So people on Facebook, they kind of want to put up their, their best self on Facebook, right? Because we're concerned about how many likes we get or how much people, you know, um, you know, are having positive opinions of us and that type of thing. And so there are all these studies on like the impact of social media on self-esteem and on self-image. And what's happening in these situations is this tool for connection is actually shaping us. It's a cultural liturgy that we are repeatedly um, participating in. Uh, another example is um, American advertising. So I think it's fascinating. There's a scholar by the name of Jackson Lears who talks a lot about this, I think. So um, if you kind of study the history of advertising in America, um, originally advertising was really about identifying a need that someone has and then creating a product to satisfy that need. So let's say if um, we know that people need water, so we create bottled water so it's convenient people can have water, right? Um, but what's interesting about kind of how that develops over the 20th century is that things shift from advertising being about meeting a need that someone has to then creating that need. And so um, kind of to, to, to provide an example is uh, when we think about like consumerism, consumerism isn't just about giving you something to, to, to satisfy the need you have. It's helping you to or it's creating a need. It's telling you you should want something, even when you don't, and even when you don't need it. This happens all the time. But this is actually a cultural liturgy. And so these things form us, they shape us. 
and they actually can hinder our gratefulness. So let me explain what I mean by that. So consumer culture is one example of how this can work. There's so many things in our world that either remind us of our current needs or convince us of new needs. And one effect of this is that a lot of the culture that we're in and this consumer culture can shape us to focus on what we lack. And so the irony is that when most of us think about consumerism, we probably think about materialism as well, right? We think about the accumulation of stuff, the way that our culture shapes us and advertising shapes us to like have a bunch of stuff that we usually don't need. But there's perhaps something deeper, I think, going on here. Uh, in his book called um, Being Consumed, Economics and Christian Desire, William Kavanaugh puts it this way. He says that consumerism is a restless spirit that is never content with any particular material thing. So his point is that consumerism or consumer culture is not primarily characterized by an attachment to material things, but by detachment. It's about insatiability. In other words, the things that we have are never enough. So it isn't that consumerism means we've got to have a million dollars or that consumerism means we've got to have, you know, a bunch of fancy cars or the latest iPhone. Instead, it's that these things are never actually enough. That's the way consumerism functions. So we can't be content with having Hulu and Netflix on our TV. Now we've got to have Disney Plus and Apple TV and HBO Max and Amazon Prime. So like we always want more. And this is a cultural liturgy that's shaping us to, is shaping our desires. And so the way advertising in a consumeristic culture works is that it has to convince us of our lack, which is the opposite of cultivating gratefulness. It trains us to, to think in the opposite way of uh, having gratitude as a, as a discipline in our lives because we're so focused on the things that we wish we had or we're trying to keep up with other people. And so this can hinder our ability to develop consistently thankful dispositions on an individual level because our eyes remain focused on what we're missing or what we think is missing or what our culture tells us that we're missing. That's often the way this shapes us. So this is a there's this cultural liturgy, this, this idea or this reality of consumer culture that is shaping us to focus on the things we don't have. And as a result, then it's harder for us to be grateful because we, we are not actually um, being shaped to appreciate what we do have. Now, on a broader, a broader level, uh, there are no shortage of messages in our culture about the needs in our world. And, and I think those things can shape us too. I remember having a conversation with someone who had a um, preferred news outlet that, uh, so basically this, this um, news outlet would send her emails every morning on what was happening in the world. So it was her way of trying to stay abreast of like, what are the current events? What's going on? And I'm sure you've noticed that one thing about the news is that there is no shortage of reminders about what is going wrong in the world. That is what the news specializes in. So it's interesting that in my conversation with her, she said that she was going to stop receiving those emails because of how alarmist they were and how um, it was affecting her mental health. Now, this woman was not advocating ignoring the news in college. She wasn't saying that. But she realized that by spending so much time allowing herself to be bombarded with all that was lacking in the world, it wasn't helping her to have much hope or have much gratefulness. And in fact, she was actually she was participating in any type of cultural liturgy, this rhythm. Every morning, every night, she was bombarded with these things. Um, and it was shaping her, shaping the way that she was engaging in the world. And so she began to imagine a daily rhythm in which her day was not bookended by reminders of lack, but bookended by communion with God and maybe even prayers of gratitude. 
And so this type of practice can have a profound impact on our ability to handle the struggles that we experience or hear about during the day, because then they can be engaged within the context of us remembering that God is still God and that God is still good. So when we think about the preconditions for gratefulness, we have to remember what God has done for us and also take inventory of how the things around us, especially these cultural liturgies, are impacting our ability to be able to be grateful. And this gives us the awareness we need to cultivate new habits and new spiritual liturgies that can help us build this great this discipline of gratitude. And so sometimes our, um, uh, our awareness of lack hinders our gratefulness because we are so focused on our own needs, the things that we don't have, the things that someone else has that we don't have. But other times, our lack of proximity to need can hinder our gratefulness. In other words, when we're not proximate to lack, we can begin to take things for granted. And um, to give you kind of an example of this, back in 20, probably 2011, uh, I uh, went to Peru. And the reason why I went to Peru is um, my now wife was in the Peace Corps at the time. And she was there for two years and serving in a really low-income area, um, well, mostly impoverished, uh, a lot of kids in malnutrition, just a whole lot going on, um, and just seeking to be um, just to be just seeking to be helped there. And so I was going to visit her because this was, was a very long distance relationship. I was in Durham, North Carolina. She was in Peru, so I saw her every every eight months. Uh, but things worked out because we're together now. A few kids, things are great. But um, one thing I remember about that uh, time is I remember staying at this hostel, and I go in, and uh, that night I'm like, "Oh, let me take let me take a quick shower." So I get ready to take a shower, and I realize this hostel has uh, no hot water. And so, if I maybe I've had a cold shower before, um, I think if I'd ever had a cold shower, it was by choice for whatever reason. Maybe it was just really hot outside when I was a kid and I took a shower when it was cold. But um, as an adult, I never would actively choose to have a cold shower. But in this situation, I realized, oh, I don't have a choice. Like it's it's cold and I need to wash and we're gonna figure out how to make this work. And I remember the next day um, when me and Diamond were out in the city. Uh, I remember trying to go to a public bathroom and having to like pay for toilet tissue and there was this whole process. And in my head, I was just reminded of how I was not prepared to be in Peru in this moment. Like I I just didn't I didn't count all the different changes that I would need to be aware of and the things that I would take for granted. Um, I, ironically, the only the only Spanish that I knew was El Baño, so I knew how to get to the bathroom or find the bathroom, but didn't realize all the protocols and um, and also didn't take inventory of the types of amenities I just would not have because it's a different country. And, and in that area of the country, it was just a different level of, of need and um, and a lack of a lot of resources. And so, so kind of what I took away from that or what I was reminded of in that experience was how being there, being in the situation where I did not have all the resources I was used to in terms of being in the States. Like it forced me to realize, oh man, I've taken so many things for granted. I've taken so many things for granted. And in our lives, when we are not proximate to lack, it's easy to take things for granted. Proximity to, to lack and to need can increase our gratefulness because it reminds us of just how fortunate we are. It reminds us just how fortunate we are. And it's hard in our culture, um, particularly we have means, right? It's, it's very easy to, to lose sight of that because we're not always um, bombarded with, uh, you know, lack around us. And so I think there are everyday practices of gratefulness that we can engage in as believers that can help us 
to kind of reorient ourselves um, in a way that uh, allows gratitude to really have a stronger hold in our lives. And one of the things which I've already alluded to is to resist the temptation to pursue sheltered lives and to resist the idol of comfort. Because honestly, if we have the financial means in America, we can construct very socially segregated lives. We can construct lives in which we're not around a lot of people who have a lot of need. And then we, we become less grateful because we can take our blessings for granted because everyone around us has the same things we have. But what if we lived differently? What if we lived in a way in which we were in closer proximity to those who had less than us? I wonder how that would shape us. How would that help us to even understand the things that we should be grateful for? How would that even shape how generous we are? And so I think thinking about our proximity to lack in our, in our everyday lives can actually be helpful in um, moving towards greater and deeper gratefulness in our lives. Because when we are brought face to face with lack, it helps us to appreciate what we have been given and hopefully motivates us to be more generous with that. Um, another uh, helpful reminder, which I think has been mentioned a couple of times uh, in this series is just like written reminders of why we should be grateful. Um, some folks like to write things down of like just naming a couple of things every day of what they wanna praise God for. Um, some folks like to use the language of scripture when they write. And so journaling and that type of thing can be helpful. Um, some folks have found it really helpful to uh, engage in verbal affirmations and that could be using scripture or things like that in terms of naming verbally why we should be thankful to God that particular day. And when I say that, I don't necessarily mean, or I don't mean uh, like na naming and claiming theology, if you're familiar with that. Uh, my dissertation was actually on the prosperity gospel, so I'm not, I'm not endorsing that way of things. Um, more of what I'm saying is I think it's, it can be powerful to name what we know to be true about who God is and um, how God has blessed us. And having that as a part of our rhythm can be really, really helpful for our formation. Um, I think prayers of thankfulness is a really important practice. Um, and even taking inventory of our own prayer lives, because I think it can be very easy for our prayer lives to be 95% petition. Um, so we immediately think about, you know, what do we want God to do for us? Or what do we need God to do for us? And I think God wants us to express our needs. But at the same time, uh, I think there's a there's a power and a um, uh, there's something very 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 healthy about just thanking God for being God, just thanking God for the ways that God has already given of Himself for us. Um, and hey, when you think about it, like our relationships with God are our relationships. So if I if me and my wife are engaging or, or relating to one another, and every time I talk to her, it was me telling her something that I want her to do for me, that relationship probably wouldn't be the healthiest, right? Because there needs to be some acknowledgement of 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 the things that are great about her and how her role is not just to tell, just to give me something that I need. It's for us to be in an active relationship of mutual love and support um, and mutual acknowledgement of um, the good things we bring to that relationship. And so in our, our relationship with, with God, it, it should never be a situation where we are just coming to God just because we need things. Um, because in reality, above all things, God is worthy of just being acknowledged for being a good God. And so I see that to say that Part of us moving in the direction of deeper gratefulness is taking inventory of our own prayer lives and saying, God, what does it look like for me to allow a commitment to gratitude to even more deeply shape how I engage in prayer with you um, and to, to take up even more of that space, if that makes sense. And so I think that can be helpful. Uh, the other thing about kind of cultivating these habits of gratefulness uh, and gratitude is being really thoughtful about how we express gratitude towards other people. Um, I think that's 
because I think a lot of times when we talk about uh, the discipline of gratitude, we can think exclusively about our relationship to God, which is, of course, important. But also, as, as people, as a community, we need to be embodying this among one another. And so uh, to give you an example of something I did, I've been doing every, like right, right around Thanksgiving for all of my staff, is we gather for our meeting, and I give everybody one index card. And then, and some of you may have done this exercise before. So basically what I do is I have them write down their name on their index card. And then in the circle, what they do is they pass their card to the person um, to their right. And that person gets the card with the name on it, and they write down something they appreciate about them, something that they are grateful for, that they see in them. And then it goes around the circle. So by the time you get your card with your name on it, you see all the things that people have appreciated about you. And I think that can be a powerful type of exercise where um, we are actually able to practice communal gratitude among one another, um, to honor one another, to be grateful for one another. And that shapes the culture of the group. And so a question that we can have as, as churches in general is, what can we do to foster congregational cultures of gratitude? What can we do so that within just the, just the daily, weekly, monthly rhythms of our life together, like we are the types of people who express gratitude to one another in a really proactive way? What if we showed our appreciation for one another more regularly? How would that change us? How might that change our church? And how might that even change the world? Because the world is very, very good at, at naming lack, um, but not as good as, as recognizing how God has been a God of abundance and how God is at work and the things that we need to be celebrating about what God is doing. And so as a church, we have a chance to model some of that. Um, so going back to our title, right? The title that, that I want to leave with was Embodied Gratefulness, because I think that actually should shape how we engage in these practices as well. Um, because embodied gratefulness is about acknowledging the full spectrum of our emotions and recognizing that authentic gratefulness resists denialism, right? So, so real gratefulness is not about, you know, pretending that everything's fine. Um, but it is about saying that in the midst of things not being perfect, God is still good. Um, and there's goodness in people, right? And so someone doesn't have to be perfect for you to express gratitude towards them. Um, but gratefulness is, is not, a, not denialism. It's about acknowledging the reality, um, but highlighting what is, what is good that we see in other people and most of all, what we see in God. The other thing about embodied gratefulness is that it's tangible. Um, so earlier I alluded to how in worship, we are expressing our gratitude towards God, but this is a very corporate, tangible act. We're gathering, engaging in liturgy together to proclaim God's name. And, and it's also tangible in the sense that when we express gratitude towards others, there should be concrete, tangible ways that we do that. It's not just all in our heads. And I think that can be, that isn't always intuitive for us, especially in, in Western culture, because Western culture tends to, uh, it tends towards intellectualism, uh, abstraction, disembodiment. And so it's not intuitive in the West that we bring our whole selves to a virtue like gratitude. It can become this mental thing if we're not careful. But Old Testament Jews and even early Christians understood this, right? In the Old Testament, like they had the practice of the Sabbath, where you stopped, you remembered God, um, you remember what God had done for you. And that had implications for your body. Like people literally stopped working. <laughs> That's what happened. It wasn't just a mental thing. And in the early church and, and after that, we had physical acts of Thanksgiving, right? Like I mentioned earlier, Eucharist. That's a physical, tangible way to stop reflect on who God is and what God has done through Christ and to give thanks. So we as believers are invited to practice gratitude as a lifestyle. 
So if that's the case, why, right? Why do we do this? Why do we engage in gratefulness and gratitude? Why, um, why do we have a whole series on it? Like, why is it so important? And why is it such a recurring theme in scripture? Who is it for? Um, I think those are really, really important questions. And first and foremost, the reason why we prioritize this is because God is worthy and scripture, the scripture commands us as believers. Time and time again throughout scripture, it says, give thanks to the Lord for he's good. Um, and we do this because scripture says it, but also because it's true. Like the God that we serve is deeply, deeply worthy of praise and worthy of our worship and adoration. And um, I think that can be hard sometimes when we lose sight of that. And uh, it reminds me of a quote from, uh, I think, Pastor Louis Giglio, where he would say that sometimes our worship is small because our conception of God is small. And I think that can be true a lot, where when it's, when it's hard for us to really um, lean into gratitude, sometimes that's because we've lost sight of how good God is, and how great God is. And so pursuing gratitude and gratefulness is about remembering just who this God is and how good he's been to us. The other, other thing about why we do this is that it actually, is, it actually impacts us. Um, I think there's been a lot of studies actually on the impact of this, uh, uh, impact of gratitude on our own mental health and how, it, how, it, um, how helpful it can be even for how we move throughout the world and move throughout the day. Because it makes a big difference to focus on the things that are good about the world and what God has done for us um, versus just focusing on the lack. It doesn't mean we ignore lack, but it means that um, kind of our priority is to say, like, God, in the midst of all that's going on, how do I see you? Where are you at work here? And when we see how God is at work, that's an opportunity for us to give thanks. Um, another reason why this is so important for us is because of the impact it can, it can have on us as a whole community. Um, when we really value gratitude and we practice that, I think this can help us to be much more generous. And this is uh, something that I think the second session, David Singh, when he was um, speaking with you all, he, um, he highlighted that connection between gratitude and generosity. That as we recognize who God is, what God has done, it actually frees us to live out of that and to be generous towards other people as an extension of God's grace. And so when we live this way, this shapes our congregational culture. Um, this can even shape our work culture, right? Because ultimately when we are disciples of Jesus, we aren't just disciples of Jesus on Sunday. We're disciples of Jesus, hopefully, everywhere we go in our workplace. Right? So if we can live as people of gratitude and, and even generosity there, that can have an impact on the work culture. Um, it can impact our own families, our own homes. And so when we think about gratitude, gratitude is really about shaping how we engage in all these spaces because we're engaging them with an awareness of how good God is and the things that are worthy of celebrating in those spaces. So as we reflect on the practice of gratitude, it's important for us to ask fundamental questions about its role in our lives. Questions like, is gratitude toward God a consistent part of my life? And how might my prayer life reflect this priority? Questions like, are there people in my life who I should be more proactive in showing appreciation to? Questions like, are there things or practices, practices in my life that are shaping me to not be that grateful? And to what degree are these things necessary or helpful? Or questions like, are there new practices I can integrate into my life that will help Thanksgiving to be an even more consistent discipline for me. Maybe it's maybe the next steps are to take time each day to write down things we're thankful for. Like some people find that really helpful. It could be to schedule time to pray prayers exclusively of Thanksgiving to God as a discipline. Maybe it's making it a daily goal to let someone know that we appreciate them. Uh, I have a parishioner in, in, in our church 
that um, we were in a conversation and what she said was that she was making a list of all the older women in the church and she's going to send flowers to them just as a way of acknowledging them and letting them know that they're seen and showing love to them. Like that's just a tangible act to kind of express that gratitude towards other people in our communities. Um, maybe a step is doing something for someone that you just know they will appreciate. Maybe even establishing a rhythm of strong appreciation would be helpful. So it, all these things are like tangible ways of reminding someone else that you see them and, and even that God sees them, that they're appreciated. And that can help us to have uh, and, cre and create congregational cultures of gratitude. And this can be really corporate. Um, I, uh, as I was thinking about this, this theme of gratitude, I was reminded of the church I grew up in, in which was a, um, I'm from a town of 300 people in Southern Virginia. So very small town, very rural. Uh, and I went to um, an African-American Baptist church that had probably 35, maybe 40 members on a Sunday. And um, one thing that I remember distinctly about that church was how we did appreciation. So there were so many different special services throughout the, the calendar year, whether that be ushers appreciation service, pastors appreciation service, deacons and trustees appreciation service, choir appreciation service. There are all these different services, um, which are really, really cool. But part of the, part of the impact of that is it shapes this um, congregational sensibility of appreciation and gratitude that people aren't just there doing things and not being seen, but rather we stop to say, you know what, that's good. That's a good thing that we should praise God for them, and we should thank people for. And so we created these congregational spaces of acknowledgement, and that shaped us to be more and more people of gratitude. And so the beautiful thing about thanking someone is that it doesn't have to just be words. It can be these tangible acts that communicate their value and their worth to you and to others. And so we're free to engage in these things because we've first been recipients of God's grace. And that's what David Singh uh, mentioned earlier in this series, right? And when gratefulness towards God is hard, perhaps we've lost sight of just how good God is and how much we need God. Um, uh, this coming Sunday, I'm going to be preaching on the story of the 10 lepers in the Gospels and how Jesus is walking down the road and these 10 lepers, um, people dealing with wet leprosy, and they're crying out for, for God to heal them, for Jesus to heal them. And Jesus heals them. And uh, they all go about their way. And uh, only the Samaritan uh, returns to actually say thank you to Jesus. And Jesus is like, what, what's going on? Like, where are the other nine? Like, why, why, why are they not being grateful? And um, it raised some really interesting questions around, like, why was it the case that just the Samaritan re returned? And if you know any of the history of, of, like, northern Israel, the Samaritans were a people group that were kind of birthed out of intermingling between the Assyrians when they captured the northern tribes of Israel and the northern tribes of Israel. And so they're, they're kind of looked upon as you know, not being fully Jewish, kind of being outcast, that type of thing. And so it's interesting how when Jesus has this encounter with these 10 lepers, it's only the Samaritan who returns to say thank you. And I can't help but wonder if that's because of just how um, deep of a sense that person had of what God had done for them. Because they were, they had, they'd been on the outskirts, they had been outcasts of their society. And that helped them to have an even deeper appreciation for just what Jesus had done. Whereas for those who had been a part of the Jewish community, had all, always viewed themselves as God's chosen people. Maybe for whatever reason, they didn't catch that in that moment. And so I think this Samaritan had been shaped to process what he received from Jesus in a different way than those others had been shaped. So we have to consider in our own lives how we have been shaped and how we might become reshaped so that we can lead lives of deep gratitude towards God on a consistent basis. Our own embodiment of gratitude is about cultivating a posture 
and a disposition. And so Christian thinker Henry Nouwen, who some of y'all may have read, he puts it this way. He says, in the past, I always thought of gratitude as a spontaneous response to the awareness of gifts received. But now I realize that gratitude can also be lived as a discipline. Discipline of gratitude is the explicit effort to acknowledge that all I am and have is given to me as a gift of love, a gift to be celebrated with joy. Now, one beautiful thing about this is that when our lives are fundamentally marked by gratitude, when this is a discipline that shapes how we navigate throughout the world, it can give hope to other people. It can give hope to a world that's longing for joy and the joy that comes from knowing and celebrating the goodness of God. And I, um, I found myself reflecting on this a few years ago. I was in conversation with a guy who I'd known for a number of years, who was a pretty staunch and had been a pretty staunch atheist for a long time. So at this point, he was in his late 60s. And although I'd seen him, I hadn't seen him in a couple of years, I knew that he had recently been diagnosed with brain cancer. So as we began to catch up, he said that he'd been doing a lot of reflecting on his life and his experiences in light of his illness. Now, you may not know this yet, but I tend to be a very optimistic and like, you know, jovial guy, at least most of the time. And so my thought was, obviously he's been through a really hard time, but since he's just said that he was, he's been reflecting on his life, I thought I would ask him if during that reflecting there were any things during his life that he's most proud of or really um, grateful to have experienced. And he turned to me and he calmly said, nothing. He said, you can't take any of it with you, so what's the point? Now, as our conversation came to a really awkward close, uh, I, found my, I found hearing this deeply saddening. I found it saddening because I don't think that this comment was simply birthed out of feeling discouraged in that moment, although I'm sure he was also discouraged. Um, since I'd known him for a number of years, I think he genuinely believed what he was saying. He really didn't see any ultimacy to his life or the things that he had experienced. And he didn't believe in God. And so these convictions took root long before he became sick. And not having connection to God made it that much harder to have a depth of thanksgiving and thankfulness because even the good things in his life lack meaning. And I think this is such a stark contrast to others that I've met and maybe you've met who live these long lives and have such a strong sense of how God has blessed them. People that can have such a strong sense of gratitude towards God and for life itself. And sometimes so strong that it can make you feel guilty for ever complaining at all. At least I felt that way. Um, before like, this guy that I mentioned and people like him, I wonder what it would look like for them to experience the church so marked by a spirit of gratitude and hope that even they would want to know the God that we worship, that they would see our gratefulness and it would cause them to want to know this gracious God that we proclaim with our lives. When we have postures of gratefulness, the way that we live can be proof that the despair in our world doesn't have to have the last word. The gospel can have the last word. And our lifestyles can be a statement, not only that there is a reason to be grateful, but that that reason is in a God who has come to make all things new and to give us an abundant life. And I think for us as people committed to practicing gratefulness, that's the opportunity before us, that we can be those individuals and even be those communities that model this to world that desperately needs it. So kind of as we transition, there are a lot of questions that this topic kind of raises for me. One is, you know, what types of cultural liturgies make it hard for us to, to be or remain grateful? Like, what are the things that are shaping our, um, or, or maybe making that harder for us? Another question is, like, how do we foster congregational cultures of gratitude? Like, what does it look like to practice as a community? Um, another question is, what impact would it have on our church if we more consistently express gratefulness towards one another? How do we even do that? 
Another question is, how can we embody a spirituality that holds grief and gratitude together? How can we do that? And I think those are things that we um, can be processing at a church. And so I've named some of my questions, but uh, I'll be quiet because I'm probably going a little long and um, want to give some space if you have questions of your own. <laughs>